Hometown Ghost Stories contains serious and often distressing events and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This week on Hometown Ghost Stories. In 1975, a family moved into a home following a mass murder that occurred less than a year prior. They only lasted 28 days before something unnatural drove them from the house permanently. The case is now considered to be the most controversial haunting of all time. Was it a hoax, or did it really happen, as the legend is told? This is episode number 24 of Hometown Ghost Stories, Amityville, Long Island, New York. January 1976. Hey, Dad, Missy said. Yeah, George replied. Jody wants to show you something, the five-year-old said. George, distracted by all the flies, was only half listening. Who? he asked, swatting one of the winged varmints. What the hell is with all these damn flies in the winter? George muttered under his breath. Jody, she repeated. He's my friend. He's a pig, she added. Yeah, okay, George said as he followed her to the stairway. Jody talks to me, Missy explained as they reached the top of the stairs. It was dark in the hallway, and George slammed his toe into something solid in the middle of the hall, causing him to yelp in pain. He flicked on the hall light to reveal a huge ceramic lion sculpture snarling up at him. How the hell did this get up here, he shouted. He had stuck it in the basement the day before because it was freaking out his wife. Missy shrugged. It was far too big for any of the kids to move, and Kathy certainly wouldn't have gone near it, let alone move it. Dad, Jody doesn't like to wait, Missy urged. They stepped into her room, which was freezing cold for some reason. Okay, George said. What's this Jody business, he asked. Jody was sick, Missy said. He used to live here a long time ago, she added. The pig? George asked. He used to be a boy, Missy said. Kathy walked into the room at this point and screamed. George looked over at her, and she was pointing out the window. He turned and saw two glowing red eyes looking in at them. He was too shocked to move. Just then, Kathy picked up a chair and threw it through the window, shattering the glass. A gust of frigid air blew in, and George scooped up Missy, turning hastily and headed out of the room. Looking back over George's shoulder, Missy waved towards the window, bidding whatever was out there goodbye. I'm Dave Wilkins, and this is Hometown Ghost Stories, Amityville, New York. The town of Amityville sits on Long Island, New York, about 30 miles east of New York City, and was at one time known as Huntington West Next South. The name was changed in 1846 when residents were trying to establish a new post office. The meeting turned into chaos, and one participant called out that this town needs some amity. Amity meaning friendship, and thus the town of Amityville was established. Its coordinates, minus 73.417 longitude, 
and a latitude of 40.666. The village isn't known for a whole lot aside from Al Capone having a house there and a famous chapel being built by Wesley Ketchum. Perhaps more memorable events would have been recorded had it not been for the brutal events that cemented the town in infamy. The DeFeo family resided on 112 Ocean Ave in Amityville in the early 1970s. Local car salesman, Ronald DeFeo Sr., and his wife, Louise, lived a seemingly normal life with their five children, John Matthew, age 9, Mark, age 12, Allison, age 13, Don, age 18, and Ronald Jr., a.k.a. Butch, or Ronnie, age 23. Ronnie worked with his father at the car dealership, but had a rough relationship. Ron Sr. was abusive to all of his children, but mostly to Ronnie. To say Ronnie DeFeo was a troubled youth would be an understatement. He was husky as a child and subsequently bullied for it. Eventually, he turned to drugs and alcohol. He lost weight due to his addictions, but it didn't help his mental state. Ronnie's relationship with his father grew more volatile over the years. Ronnie continued to get into trouble, and his parents' solution to this was to give him money, hoping to keep him happy and out of trouble. They even went as far as to give him a speedboat. Rather than keeping out of trouble, Ronnie would just spend his extra cash on heroin, LSD, bourbon, and firearms. Ronald Sr. even got Ronnie a job at the family dealership, but the boy's behavior continued to get worse. One day at work, Ronald Sr. entrusted his son with the task of making a $20,000 deposit for the dealership. Ronnie later told his father that he got robbed and the deposit was gone. His father didn't buy it and accused Ronnie of lying and stealing. This sent Ronnie into a fit of rage, and he actually pointed a shotgun at his father's face and told him he was going to kill him. He even pulled the trigger, but the unloaded weapon just clicked. On November 13, 1974, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. climbed out of bed while his family slept quietly. He crept up the stairs to his parents' room and approached their bed. He could hear his father snoring. He lifted his rifle and pointed it at his father's back as his head lay dreaming on his pillow. Two shots cracked, both striking the man in his back, ripping through his kidney and ricocheting off the base of his spine, lodging in his neck. Louise woke up, but before she could realize what was going on, two more shots ripped through the dark, ending her life as well. Ronnie stalked down the hall to his younger brother's room. He pumped one shot into Mark, killing him instantly, and another into his youngest sibling, John, severing his spine, causing him to twitch and spasm. Ronnie then entered his sister's room, where he shot his little sister Allison once in the back, and his sister Dawn once in the head, blowing half of her face off. Ronnie didn't flee town or panic. He washed up, got dressed, and went to work later that morning. Around 6.30pm, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. entered Harry's Bar in Amityville, Long Island, and declared, You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. A small group of people followed DeFeo to his house, which wasn't far from the bar. They went inside, up to his parents' room, and found the couple shot to death, face down in their bed. Ronnie's friend Joe Yeswit, who was a part of the group, dialed the police emergency line, and they arrived and searched the house, finding all six members of the family shot to death, face down in their beds. The parents had both been shot twice, while all of the children had been killed with one shot. The weapon was a 35 caliber lever-action Marlin 336 rifle. The murders were said to be committed sometime between 3 o'clock and 3.30 a.m., according to a neighbor who said they heard the DeFeo's dog barking like crazy at that time. The peculiar thing about the murders was that nobody heard the gunshots. There would have been eight shots fired in the dead of night, and according to experts, the rifle could not have been suppressed, and even fired from inside of a house still would have been heard up to a mile away. Even stranger yet, all six members of the family were shot while lying face down in the bed, and nobody seemed to have woken up during the gunfire. 
It was later thought that some of the bodies may have been moved to their beds post-mortem. Ronald DeFeo Jr. was initially taken into police custody, not because he was suspected of being the killer, but because his grandfather, Michael Brigante, was known to have connections to the Genovese crime family. Ronald's first defense was that he believed the murders were a mob hit and fingered mafia hitman Louis Fellini. The police ruled this theory out almost immediately due to inconsistencies, and before long, DeFeo confessed to the killings. Michael Brigante had initially wanted to hire a lawyer to defend his grandson, but changed his mind, presumably because his certainty of DeFeo's innocence faded after his story began changing. The trial began October 14, 1975, and DeFeo was appointed attorney William Weber to defend him. He entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, claiming he heard voices telling him to kill his family. The defense team's frustration heightened due to DeFeo's inability to stop changing his story. He claimed his sister Dawn committed the murders, and he killed her when he found out. He blamed his mother. He blamed his father. He claimed to have an accomplice, which actually was a theory corroborated by criminologist Herman Race, who believed two different guns, including a handgun, were used in the shooting. None of it ended up mattering, as on November 21, 1975, DeFeo was convicted of six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to six back-to-back -back life sentences. Less than a month later, the Lutz family would purchase the DeFeo home for an $80,000 bargain and move in. George and Kathy Lutz had been in the market for a new house after recently getting married. They were looking in the $30,000 to $50,000 price range, but hadn't found anything that would accommodate them and Kathy's three young children from a previous marriage. Their realtor showed them 112 Ocean Ave, knowing it was a bit out of their price range, but closer to what they were looking for to suit their needs. They immediately fell in love with the house. It was a Dutch colonial with a swimming pool and a boathouse. When presented with the recent macabre history of the property, they shrugged it off, saying, Houses don't have history. People do. Neither George nor Kathy were superstitious. They even purchased some of the DeFeo's furniture that had been left in the house, including the bed frames that the DeFeo children had been in when they were shot. The Lutz family moved in on December 18th with their dog Harry and their three children, Daniel, age 9, Christopher, age 7, and Missy, age 5. One of the first thing they did upon moving in was have the house blessed. One of George's friends had heard about the history of the house and insisted on it. George wasn't Catholic, but knew a Catholic priest by the name of Ralph Picarero, otherwise known as Father Ray. He arrived to bless the house the day the Lutzes were moving in. They exchanged pleasantries, and the priest went on to bless the house while the family unpacked. As he was blessing the former bedroom of Mark and John DeFeo, he splashed some holy water and instantly felt as if he were slapped across the face. Then he heard a booming voice command him to get out. He did just that, but decided not to mention anything to the Lutzes at the time, perhaps unsure of what he just experienced. Over the course of the next week, nothing particularly abnormal happened, except that George couldn't seem to keep the house warm. He spent his days chopping wood and feeding the fire, neglecting work, chores, and even his self-hygiene. His beard grew out, and he was losing weight. Meanwhile, Father Pecorero back at the rectory, had developed a high fever and blisters on his hands, similar to stigmata. This concerned him, and he decided to call to check in on the Lutz family. George answered, and the priest asked about the room on the second floor. George told him they planned to use the room for a sewing room. The priest strongly advised them to stay out of that room, but the call was cut short by static before he could get his message across. One of the first nights in the house, George woke around 3.15 a.m. to a knocking at the front door. He quickly sat up in bed. Confused, he looked around, not used to his new surroundings. Kathy was still asleep. The knock came again, louder this time. What the hell is that, he asked himself. He headed out of the bedroom and into the hallway to go down the stairs when the knock came again, 
only now he realized it wasn't coming from downstairs. It was coming from off to his left. He headed into the sewing room that overlooked the Amityville River. Suddenly, there was a loud crack above his head. He jumped, but quickly realized the noise was coming from the boys' room. It was probably just one of their toys falling off the bed. Out the window, George saw Harry, the family dog, barking frantically at the boathouse. He headed downstairs and out the back door to see the boathouse door swinging open and closed. I'm sure I locked that, he said out loud. He shut the door and brought Harry back inside. He laid awake in bed all night, the former U.S. Marine, too scared to go to sleep. Kathy began having horrible nightmares about the DeFeo murders. She would wake up screaming about the mother being shot. She even dreamed of Louise having an affair with an artist, which turned out to be something that actually might have happened. There had been suspicion of Louise DeFeo having an affair with the man who painted a family portrait of the DeFeos, but Kathy would have no reason to know any of that. One day, George was heading out to chop some wood when he saw the family dog frantically barking at the boathouse again. He walked over to calm the dog down, which after some effort, he succeeded in doing. As he turned back towards the house, he saw Missy in the second-story window, looking past him, and behind her was a dark figure in the shape of a pig's head with glowing red eyes. He hurried in the house and into the room where he'd seen her, but the room was empty. Missy, he called. She was down the hall in her room, playing by herself. The following morning, Missy approached Kathy and asked her, Mama, do angels talk? What a peculiar question, she thought, as she made breakfast. Just then, she got a strange whiff of what smelled like a woman's perfume. Before she had a chance to begin to wonder what the smell was, she felt an embrace from behind, like two arms that weren't there, tightening around her. Panic set in as she came to grips with the fact that she was being assaulted by something that wasn't visible. The sensation ended as quickly as it began, but Kathy was left rattled. More and more unusual things continued to happen more frequently. Missy had an imaginary friend named Jody that Kathy and George thought nothing of until one day she mentioned that Jody was a pig. George would repeatedly be woken up at 3.15 a.m. by what sounded like a horrible marching band crashing through the halls of the house. On another occasion, Danny, the oldest, was playing by a window when it inexplicably slammed shut on his fingers, flattening them completely. Kathy rushed him into the kitchen and began assembling an ice pack. As she did so, Danny saw a cloaked shadow figure coming towards him. He put his hand up to stop it, but it walked right through his hands and disappeared. When Kathy turned around to apply ice to the boy's destroyed extremity, it was completely back to normal. A few days later, Kathy's brother Jimmy Connors and his fiancée Kerry came over to the house before their wedding. George was to be the best man. Before they left the house, the $1,500 deposit for the caterer went missing. George wrote a check to cover it, assuming the money would turn up, but it never did. When they went to the church for the ceremony, George became violently ill upon entering the building and got even worse when he took communion. Back at the house, crucifixes would turn upside down and black liquid would appear in the toilets. The family would flush, but the liquid would come right back. One evening, George was in the basement when he was overcome by a rancid stench. He started moving boxes trying to find the source when he uncovered a small room that wasn't part of the house's floor plan. It was too small for an adult to stand in and was painted red. Towards the back wall was a well that had been covered up. As George turned to leave, he saw what looked like a face on the wall that looked vaguely familiar. At first he thought it was his own reflection, but the face appeared to be grinning and George was not smiling. He didn't realize it at the time because he had never seen the man, but he was looking into the face of Ronnie DeFeo. He shuddered and hurried back upstairs. One of George's employees, who knew the family's troubles, had a girlfriend named Francine who was a psychic medium. She got on the phone with George to ask some questions about the house and their experiences. Without George mentioning anything, she told him to look for a well in the basement. 
She was sensing there was one there, and that was where the evil was emanating from. George was blown away, having recently just found a well in the strange red room in the basement. He asked the couple to come over. Father Pecorero, who had just begun to recover from his mysterious illness, decided to give the Lutzes a call because he was concerned about them. He told George to get him and his family out because he sensed a darkness in the house. George thanked the priest, but decided not to flee the property. When Francine and Eric arrived, she was immediately uncomfortable in the house. She requested they go to the basement. As soon as they got there, she got a terrible feeling in her gut. She asked to see the well. George showed her, and she told him that people died in that little room. I'm uncomfortable down here. I need to get out of this cellar, she said. They headed back up the stairs, down the hall, and up to the second story. Outside the sewing room, she went into a deep trance for about a minute. When she came to, she looked at Eric and demanded they leave immediately. They did just that, and never returned. Later that night, Kathy and George were sitting by the fireplace when Kathy stood up and pointed into the fire. Her face went pale as a ghost. There was a figure of a cloaked white shadow coming out of the fire. George looked up and saw it too, but it immediately disappeared, leaving an ash imprint on the bricks in the shape of a horned devil. Unsettled, they decided to go to bed, but George woke at 3.15am to the sound of that marching band again. Knowing he wasn't going to fall back to sleep, he sat up to get a beer. As he looked over at Kathy, he saw her levitating above the bed, up against the wall, slowly sliding up. He grabbed her and yelled her name. She woke up, confused. What? She asked, but immediately realized the situation, screamed, and slid back down the bed. George looked into her face and gasped. What? She asked. He just looked at her, horrified. Her face had somehow aged 60 years. She looked like a 90-year-old woman. Deep grooves in her skin, and her hair appeared white. She ran to the mirror and screamed. It didn't last. The line slowly faded, and after about a half hour, she went back to normal, but deeply disturbed. George was thoroughly freaked out at this point. He called Father Pecorero and begged him to come back and bless the house again. The priest made several excuses not to come back out to the house, and George couldn't understand why. This was because the priest didn't tell George that he was terrified of the house, and that every time he talks to George, he becomes violently ill and breaks out in sores. Eventually, the priest agreed to bless the house again, but not in person. He'd hold a special mass at church and bless it off-site. He hung up the phone, and immediately, his hands began to break out again, and his apartment filled with the rancid stench of human excrement, a known sign of the demonic. George finally decided the family had to get out of the house. They piled into the car. Kathy had called her mother and told her they were coming to stay with her for a few days. Relieved to be out of the house, George turned the key to the ignition. Nothing. He tried again. Still nothing. Frustrated, he popped the hood, but couldn't identify a problem. A storm was rolling in, and a gust of wind blew the hood shut, nearly slamming it on George. It was too late to call a mechanic anyways, so they were stuck for one more night. The storm was raging, and the house was inexplicably hot, except for the sewing room. George picked up the phone, and there was no dial tone. Line's dead, he said. Kathy had a look of panic on her face. We leave in the morning, George proclaimed. Lying in bed... George heard the storm start to die down and felt the temperature subsequently drop. As he started to drift off to sleep, he heard doors slamming in the hallway and things banging on the floor above his head. He was about to get up when he felt something step onto the foot of the bed. It started crawling towards him and he could hear the bed springs creaking as it approached. He went to sit up, but it stepped on his chest. He couldn't move or breathe. Hooves, he thought. Whatever it was, it was standing on his chest, preventing him from moving. Lack of oxygen made his vision cloudy, and a black shroud closed around him as he lost consciousness. The next thing he knew, Danny and Chris were shaking him awake, screaming about someone in their room with no face. 
George hopped out of bed and ran to the stairway where the dog was snarling and barking up at something. As George approached the staircase, he looked up and saw a giant figure cloaked in white. He recognized it as the apparition he and Kathy saw in the fireplace a few days prior. The figure raised its arm and pointed at George. George turned and yelled at the boys to get their sister and get outside. He scooped Kathy up, who was still sleeping or in a trance, and carried her out to the car. This time it started. They tore down the driveway and never looked back. They abandoned all their belongings, including their boat, George's motorcycles, and anything else that wouldn't fit in their car. Although they never stepped foot on the property again, the haunting didn't end for them. The levitations continued at Kathy's mother's house, and Kathy broke out with strange sores that were scalding hot to the touch. Whatever dark entity they encountered at that house attached itself to the family and followed them away. The Amityville Horror is unquestionably the most controversial ghost story ever told. The story gained traction immediately, and everybody wanted to be a part of it, from enthusiasts to skeptics. As is usually the case, skepticism was the mainstream idea, and the story today is widely accepted as debunked based on a number of claims that on the surface seem to be pretty convincing. But I'm going to dig a little deeper and give an alternate perspective and shoot some holes in the theories that support claims that the Lutzes and the Warrens were frauds. Here are the major arguments of the naysayers. 1. Father Pecorero, after corroborating author Jay Anson's account of the Amityville Horror in his book, later walked back his account and claimed he never visited the house, only spoke with George Lutz once on the phone. 2. Ronnie DeFeo's attorney, William Weber, claimed he spoke with the Lutzes about collaborating on a book deal and accused the Lutzes of making the entire story up. 3. Paranormal investigator and parapsychologist Stephen Kaplan, who spoke with George Lutz about investigating the house before the family moved out, also claimed that the family made up the entire story. 4. The Lutz's next-door neighbor claimed Jody, the pig demon that the Lutz's kept seeing, was actually a large farm cat that the previous owners referred to as Piggy. 5. George and Kathy were accused of being into the occult, and therefore could have easily fabricated these stories based on what they knew from their dark hobby. 6. The Lutz family bought a house they couldn't afford due to George's failing business, therefore planned and staged the whole haunting in order to sell a story for a book deal. Ed and Lorraine Warren apparently helped perpetuate the lie by staging a bogus investigation after the family moved out. And 7. None of the house's occupants following the Lutzes have experienced anything paranormal to this day. On the surface, this seems pretty bulletproof and hard to debunk, but let's see what we can do. 1. Regarding the priest, Father Pecorero did in fact corroborate his role in the Amityville story during a TV interview where his face was blacked out and his voice was altered. The Catholic Church does not like to be in the limelight when it comes to demonic cases. It's almost impossible to get them to involve themselves in a case unless there's bulletproof evidence of demonic activity, and even then, keep it on the down low. The only way Anson was allowed to use Father Pecorero's witness account was if he used an alias and his true identity remained a secret, which it did until it didn't. This is why he appeared in the book as Father Mancuso in the movie as Father Delaney. Once his true identity was leaked, the higher-ups in the Catholic Church would have pressured him to distance himself from the story. This is when he began to walk his story back. Regarding William Weber... William Weber got wind of the Lutz's story before they moved out of the house and figured it could help his client win an appeal on grounds of his mental state. He met with the Lutz family and pitched the idea of a book deal to them before Jay Anson was ever in the picture. At first, Kathy and George were on board, having gone through a psychological event that they had, but when Weber told them that Ronnie DeFeo was going to get a cut of the profits, George became disenchanted and killed the deal. 
This left Weber sour, and he proceeded to go around telling everyone who would listen that the Lutzes were liars. Regarding Stephen Kaplan Of all the naysayers, Dr. Stephen Kaplan was on the forefront. Every time the Lutzes or the Warrens were in the news or being interviewed, he was right there demanding equal face time. He came into the picture when George was reaching out to different parapsychologists and paranormal investigators. George spoke with Dr. Kaplan over the phone and asked if he could come out and investigate the house. He was very excited to do so and told George that he was going to bring a white witch with him to perform an exorcism. George and Kathy weren't on board with this idea, so they requested there not be a witch, but Kaplan was adamant. They did some research into him and the institutions he claimed to be affiliated with, such as the American Society for Psychical Research on West 73rd Street and the Parapsychological Foundation on 29 West 57th Street in New York, but were unable to verify his credentials. Duke University didn't know about him either, so they called him and told him they would not be needing his services. From this point on, Kaplan used every chance he could to try to discredit them and paint them as frauds. Here's what you can find if you look into Dr. Stephen Kaplan. He ran about four different organizations out of Long Island at the time. He was the self-proclaimed founder and director of the Parapsychology Institute of America, the Werewolf Institution of America, the Vampire Institution of America, and the Ghostology Institution of America, all of which he ran out of his apartment in Long Island. Yet the actual recognized institutions and organizations regarding parapsychology at that time, like UCLA and Duke University, had no record of the good doctor. On top of all of this, Dr. Kaplan got his PhD from the Pacific Correspondence School in California, whose founder and director spent time in prison for fraud. Before he went to prison, anybody could get any kind of document they wanted for an agreed-upon dollar amount. Kaplan went on to make claims that the Lutzes were broke and desperate and could barely make their first mortgage payment, let alone the second and the third. But if the ever-credible vampire doctor just looked at public records, he could have seen that the Lutzes, after selling their two previous houses, paid their mortgage on their new house through the month of July. But he was a quack, so what do you expect? Regarding the fat farm cat. One of the Lutzes and also the DeFeo's neighbors did confirm that there was a fat farm cat nicknamed Piggy that roamed around the neighborhood. But when Kathy threw a chair through the window it was looking in, they were on the second floor during a windstorm. Now, I'm no ghostology doctor like our friend Stephen Kaplan, nor am I a cat expert. But I don't think any obese feline big enough to be mistaken for a pig is climbing 20 feet into a tree during a windstorm. But that's just me. So, quickly regarding uh, George and Kathy's obsession with the occult, these claims were based on Kathy and George's interest in transcendental meditation. That's it. Uh, yes, it falls under the widespread umbrella of the occult, but it's not like they were studying witchcraft or conjuring demons, uh, and they were in no way experts in the occult. That would be a massive exaggeration. I don't think this one was a huge deal as far as the debunking goes, but it was worthy of a comment. Regarding Kathy and George's financial motives, the idea that the Lutzes bought a house they couldn't afford, then planned a haunting hoax in hopes to sell the idea in order to dig themselves out of the financial mess they got themselves in, makes exactly zero sense. They put a $28,000 down payment on the house, $40,000 in escrow, he had three custom choppers, a motorcycle trailer, a speedboat, all of their clothing, jewelry, furniture, etc., totaling around $100,000 they lost altogether. That's a ridiculous gamble in hopes that a ghost story is going to pay off. Especially, whereas the house was insured for its replacement value, which is more than they owed on it. 
And if they were planning on a hoax, they probably would have waited to buy the speedboat. Regarding none of the occupants after the Lutz family experiencing anything paranormal, as I mentioned earlier, the way the story ends, the demonic entity attached itself to the family when they vacated the property. They continued to experience similar things they experienced at the house. And if you believe in the demonic, you understand that they don't haunt houses, they haunt people. Which would explain why people living in the house after the Lutzes wouldn't have experienced anything. It's fair to note that the Lutzes, even after they divorced, took their story all the way to their graves. They even both passed polygraph tests. Now I know these can be beaten, but two people beating a lie detector test is pretty unlikely. Also, both Danny and Chris still swear by their stories to this day. George and Kathy Lutz are dead. Ronnie DeFeo Jr. is dead. The Warrens are dead. Jay Anson is dead. The werewolf doctor is dead. The only people who could have confirmed this legitimacy or confirmed it was a hoax are all dead. This story will live on in infamy and controversy, but it will never be confirmed and it will never be debunked. And anyone who tells you otherwise is a liar. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into Hometown Ghost Stories, episode number 24. That was Amityville, 28 Days of Horror. Uh, and that's all the time we have. Thank you guys for joining. <laughs> it, was, it, was fun. <laughs> it was a long one. It was a long one. So I'm joined by Rob Coakley. What's up, Rob? Rightfully so, a long one, though. There's just so much to unpack in this story. There absolutely was. It was, uh, it was a long one and it had to be. And uh, Dave Wilkins, who uh, put this one together. Nice job, Dave. How are you? Thanks. I'm good. So that's Amityville. Uh, I, I enjoyed that one, and I like um, specifically how you went into that uh, that whole spiel at the end with the uh, wolf doctor and all that kind of stuff. So I want to welcome in, before we jump into it, welcome in a few people that were hanging out in chat for a long time there. Uh, Cash are on all 16 of his accounts. Kate's here. Dale is here. I want to welcome in a couple of new people. Um, who was it? Dale was Cook's the- in the YouTube chat. Dana D's on the Facebook stream. There's a brand new one I wanted to welcome, but I can't find it here. So uh, welcome in, everyone that joined. Thank you so much. And uh, I want to apologize to Seth W., who does not want to be called Seth W. On Patreon, he subscribed, and his specific request is that he's referred to as Dave Sucks. So Dave, I don't know why you didn't put Dave Sucks in your video, but uh, Dave Sucks, I want to thank you for continuing your your subscription on Patreon. Uh, If you guys like the video, you guys like the content, make sure that you uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Drop a sub. Anyways, with all that out of the way, Let's jump into it. So, uh, so this, so I, you know, every single paranormal podcast that's ever covered the Amityville horror case always hits us with the super hot take. It's a hoax. It's a hoax. It's most likely a hoax. There are a few people that believe it, but for the most part, it's everyone talks about the people who have allegedly debunked it. And no one ever talks about, you know, the inconsistencies and the, how uncredible some of these sources are that supposedly debunked the story um it just it got so big so fast that um just it, it blew up they made 17 movies about this story 17 and the, obviously the book and everybody wanted to be a part of this so you had people that were trying to say they were investigating the house even though they may or may not have actually been there and then you had the people that were trying to say that you know 
they were going to debunk it. So you have people trying to ingratiate themselves with the story and you have people trying to, you know, just everyone's trying to get their 15 minutes of fame with the story. And I think it just kind of got out of control. So I wanted to kind of put the spin on it where we debunked the debunkers. And that's different because I I hadn't really heard someone debunk the debunkers before. So that's why I was pretty interested in uh, hearing what you did. The claims that it was fake were really compelling. And I had just read a book on this and I sent you guys the title of it that was very condescendingly uh, referring to the house as absolutely not haunted and referring to the story as fake. And they went through a few of the bullet points on why it was fake. I was like, well, this sounds really convincing. I mean, I agree the house is not haunted. I, I'm, I'm sure it's not haunted anymore. Like, you know, this, the story, the way the story goes is whatever was there attached itself to the family and because it continued to haunt them after they moved out of the house. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not haunted. Maybe yeah. it's the least haunted house in the world, but that doesn't mean the haunting didn't happen. Right. And, sure. and what you had said in the, uh, the episode makes sense where it's like, uh, you know, demons attach themselves to people, not places. So the fact that it still carried on and followed them, the levitations, uh, her face aging, which is a new one. I, I, I hadn't heard that in any other cases. The fact that she looked like a really old woman for a little while. I have heard cases of people's faces being distorted temporarily. That happened in the Scotland episode inside the vaults. One of the women that was on a tour there, uh, she had just gotten like pushed by, uh, I think it was Mr. Boots, the evil presence us down there. And when she came out, her face was like all Picasso and, and strange. And it took a little while to get back to normal, which is pretty crazy. So, but that's the only other one that I've heard kind of like that. But in this one, she aged, like she turned into like a, a strange old woman for a little while. And yeah. I guess that continued after they left the house too. Yep. It happened to her twice that they mentioned in the book. Um, so like we were saying about the debunking stuff, there's actually a lot of stuff that was debunked about this that, is actually debunked and i left some of it out of the story like the infamous green slime that's kind of um basically synonymous with the amityville story it was one of the bigger parts in the book and one of the bigger parts in the movies and it was something that george lutz had come out later and he said that that was something that jay anson the author added in that wasn't act that didn't actually happen um but the family george and kathy took this story to their graves and they swore they they got divorced shortly after this happened so they weren't even i mean they were on good terms but they weren't like friends they didn't owe each other anything the two of them took the story to the grave they swore that it happened they passed lie detector tests um and even the son in uh danny lutz in he had a documentary a few years ago called my amityville horror and they they said they asked him how he felt about george's death and he said i'm glad he's dead um, did not like his father. There's no love lost between them. He says, you know, I'm glad he's dead, but everything the guy said was true, albeit somewhat exaggerated. Mm-hmm. So he swears uh, by the haunting still. Just real quick to get to this question. Dana DS, what about uh, George hearing the marching band at 3 a.m. or more specifically 3.15 a.m.? Do you know if that's true? So they, that's one thing that he's always admitted was true. You know, he never, he never said it wasn't. Um, so, you know, you have to kind of take him at his, at his word for that. And I was talking to my other brother about this recently. Cause we found that kind of amusing. It's like something you don't hear. Like I hear a marching band. That's kind of weird. Um, if you're going to make up a ghost story, is that a detail you include? I heard a marching band. Like that's not something more specific to that. Not only did he hear like a marching band, but every instrument was playing like a different song. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, if you walk into like a high school band practice and everyone's yeah. practicing a different song at the same time. Yeah, it's just yeah. like so like that's a weird detail to add to that. On top of it already being a weird story, saying like, Yeah, I heard a marching band, but every instrument was going a different way and playing a different song. It's just it's like, a great point though, because when you think of marching bands, you don't find that to be scary. It definitely is something that would keep you up at night. It's like, oh my god, they're doing their marching band music again. But if you, yeah, if you were gonna make something up, you would make something that's much scarier sounding up. Like you heard, I don't know, a, a woman singing outside. You heard, you know, any anything. You could pick anything from the list of haunted sounds people Please hear in every haunted house. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, marching band isn't gonna make that list for sure. So what I wanted to hit on is we just to go back to the demonic presence at the house. And we have talked about how they attach themselves to people, but they do stay at a location for a while or for a long time, depending on what they end up attaching themselves to. And one of the things that I, one of the theories I saw was that this demonic entity attached himself to the, what's his, what's the guy's name that killed the family? Ronnie DeFeo. Ronnie DeFeo. DeFeo attach themselves to him and the the interesting part about the murder is he goes around if he does it by himself and kills all of these people right laying in their beds none of them wake up the gun is a very very loud gun um which is shocking that none of them woke up and none of the neighbors heard anything either so there the theory I saw was that he was possessed by this demonic spirit and that it had some sort of some sort of thing that it did to silence everything in the house, which is crazy to think of because it sounds silly. But when you hear the story of this gun going off, you know, 12 times, six times, whatever it is, one time should be enough to wake everybody else in the house. Uh, I'm so, on the side of um, now I have nothing to say why so maybe you're, maybe you're right. It's a wild theory, but it could be could be correct. But I have no idea why the neighbors wouldn't have heard gunshots. It's a it's a loud gun. I mean, obviously. Well, on that's crazy. Going off Rob's theory there about it creating like a quiet zone or whatever. You go back to the Conjuring story, um, and the girls upstairs playing with the Ouija board in the chimney closet, and they're like this loud growling and they're screaming and furniture slamming around and they run downstairs and Roger's asleep on the couch and the mom's making kitchen. You've, we've been to this house. If I seize in the top floor, you're going to hear it on the opposite side of the house and the bottom right. floor. Yeah. So that's a similar, you know, a similar situation where, where uh, you have like a quiet, right. quiet zone during a, a haunting. And so I know it's I, not a gun, but the Velisca ax murder house, you know, like a guy walking around a house and, systematically taking people out with an axe. I'm not saying that it's as loud as this gun was going to be, but quiet enough to not wake up like one of like eight people at all. Like that's mm-hmm. crazy too. Just these stories like that. We hear about this stuff where it, it's, it's baffling that nobody wakes yeah. up. I'd understand neighbors not hearing that one, but like for this with the gun, it's, it's asinine that nobody woke yeah. up. It makes me think that, it makes me think that there was more than one one shooter involved. So I know those theories going around that maybe like one of her sisters or one of his shitbag friends or something like that had had something to do with it. Yeah, and there was an, a, a cousin that was uh, he he. Now, granted, he had a hundred different stories um, about what happened. He blamed his mother. He blamed his sister. He blamed the mafia. Um, but he 
the 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 theory of a second shooter is actually like corroborated by a criminologist. And that was a, a strong theory that was uh, brought up in the trial. And it's actually a, a theory that most criminologists to this day still agree with. They believed it was a second shooter. They just never caught him. So they mm-hmm. convicted Ronnie DeFeo on the crimes. You know, the public was satiated with that, you know, that he went to jail for it. And then the book and the movie just took this story to the moon and everyone forgot about the, uh, you know, the idea of a second shooter even though there probably was one and there's a strong, the people act, the criminologists strongly believe it might have actually been Dawn, his sister as the second shooter, because she was the only victim who was shot in the head. And, um, and yeah, so it's, it's kind of crazy. She's the only one that woke up like, because it seems like there's always one that wakes up at the end. So I think she woke. I don't think it was his sister. His story changed way too many times. Like it just his story. You ask him the story on a Monday. It's different on Tuesday. It's different on Wednesday. He had a hundred, like you said, a hundred different stories. I can't, I can't buy the fact that it was the sister. It just doesn't add up because he was trying to make himself the hero behind that story where he's like, well, yeah, I killed my parents, but she killed all my brothers and sisters at the same time. So that's why I killed her. It's like, that doesn't even begin right. to. I know he's a sociopath, and like all the history of him shows that he's a sociopath, but that literally makes zero sense. Like, there's no rhyme or reason behind that story. Exactly. So, so his sister Dawn was apparently a, a drug addict, also. So the two of them, um, I think that's kind of where that that theory gained a little bit of traction. Um, not that being a drug addict makes you murder your family, but you know where he was and she was, they might have. Who knows. They could have been there. I want to touch on a couple of these comments before we get too far away from them. So Dana put in, uh, I found it strange that everyone was found um, dead on their stomachs. So that is, that's a fact about the case. Every single one of them was, was face down. So um, there's a theory about the people being awake during the shooting. So you've got, you figure he goes upstairs, he, he kills his two parents, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He shoots the father. It's, it's um, according to the, the CSI, the mother did wake up, but he shot her before she would, he had a chance before she had a chance to get out of bed. And then maybe panic ensued. Maybe he points the gun at the younger siblings and says, get in bed, lay down, face down. Right. You know? right, right. And then yeah, shoots them. That's you know? yeah, uh, that's definitely maybe that valid. happened. Another theory, uh, Andrew brought it up. He says, I read that the family uh, the family was drugged to, to keep them asleep. That was, was an early theory. Yeah, the that talk, was an early the talks report would show that, though. Yep, and the, toxo- the toxology report ruled that out. But that was an early theory. Okay, and then... Um, Dale pointed and he said, uh, I definitely would have, oh, it definitely would have woke the people in the house, at least at the second or third shot. Yeah, I think there's no denying that. Yeah, eight shots. I mean, that's a loud gun. Eight times. Any gun. Even with a silencer on it, I guess it's not going to. I had heard that he was out trying to shop for a silencer as well, and uh, there, he was informed that it was legal in his state to to purchase his silencer. Obviously before the shooting. And he didn't want to, he's like, I don't want to break the law. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you bring up the therapist at all? I, it was a long episode. I don't remember. So the therapists, which therapist? So the one that he, so the parents were worried about him. I mean, obviously the father was abusive and everything, but he still gave this kid a ton of money. Like you mentioned, they try to do everything they could. Otherwise, although the father was an asshole, abusive guy. So they brought him to a therapist as well. And the therapist told the parents if you don't get him committed right now, he is going to kill you. 
just so you know, like this, he's a sociopath and he's going to kill you if you don't commit him to, um, to a, a, an insane asylum or whatever. So he, they were warned. They knew what he had pointed a gun at him too. Yeah. And pulled the trigger. Point. Yeah. And pulled the trigger. So, just didn't shoot. yeah. So like this guy was insane. Um, one thing I found interesting about the hauntings, like one of the things when I was listening to people debunking it, they were talking to one of the neighbors and the neighbor is like, Oh, it was definitely all a hoax. And they're like, well, why? He's like, well, that night that all that stuff happened and they finally left, I would have heard something. It's like, you didn't hear six shots a year ago. And yeah. <laughs> if you would have, you would have heard some stuff yeah. going on in the house. What are we doing? Like that's, that's your, that's why you're debunking it. Like, come on, bro. So yeah, that, that kind of tickled me when I that's was, a good one. when I was reading about, I, that's just what I was thinking. I'm like, you can't hear the gunshots, but you, you're going to hear some stuff smashing around in the house. Get out of here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then there was also the claim from the family. And I, I'm not sure if you put it in the episode, but on the, the night where they, had it all and they moved out they had heard that to them there was a massive hurricane going on like a huge storm outside wind rain all this crazy stuff and apparently there was no hurricane that night according to so the, the discrepancies of the, uh, weather with the place. i had such a long list of like debunking the debunking things i was going to go through i had to like boil it down I was like man this was already a half hour long but mm-hmm. the um the discrepancies with the weather a lot of that came like a lot of people started calling out the book because they're like well this weather didn't happen on this day and that weather didn't happen on that day they were in the house for 28 days but the haunting only happened for the last 10 jay anson stretched it out for 28 days because 10 days didn't seem believable enough and didn't make for a good enough story so he had the haunting start on day one and end on day 28 when in reality it was only day 18 to 28. So Hmm. when they say it was snowing on this day and people say, no, it wasn't that's because the timeline was all fucked up because of the, because of the way Anson wrote the book. So I wonder how much people are getting skewed from the book and the actual accounts, because I've read in several places that the haunting started on day one, like they started noticing paranormal things. So that's so, them probably reading into the book and not understanding the real story. Yeah. So the things that did happen on day one were like the priest blessed the place and the priests yeah. heard the, you know, stuff like that. But the real like doors getting wrenched off of um, the Hanging door frames, stuff. which was also uh, pretty credibly debunked. Um, and, you know, like the major things started happening on day how did they de- How did they debunk that? So the the owners who moved into the house after the Lutzes said that all of the windows and doors, trim and frames were all original. Nothing was replaced. And if they, you know, the, allegedly on the last day when the family ran down the stairs, they said the door had been wrenched off the hinges again and they left the house as is and never came back. So unless somebody, a good Samaritan came by and repaired the door for them, that wouldn't have made any sense. Um, I mean, whoever's well, selling a, the house would be putting this stuff back together. Yeah. But also, maybe, if, if yeah, a ghost can rip a door off the hinges, a dose well, they, the door, they they a ghost can rip the door back on the hinges. Yeah, maybe the door's like, maybe the ghost is like, yeah, I got rid of them, now I'll fix my house. But they, um, <laughs> I yeah, do want to hit on this comment. Point. That's a good point. So the, Dale Cook says, people that will always try to debunk what they don't understand or what scares them. And I agree, like, that's, that's just what people are going to do. But I also think that we need to actively be trying to debunk this stuff as well so that you just don't get into the mindset that everything is real so that you're not taken advantage of. Right. So you need to be looking 
through both sides. You got to be open to it, but you also need to be looking at reasons to debunk it. I was looking heavily to debunk this one, right? And there was one quote from from the from Lutz, the uh, the husband there, George. That, George, that caught my attention. And right after the movie premiere, there was a reporter talking to him. And the reporter was like, oh, what did you think of the movie? Do you like it? And he's like, well, I wish they would have just kept it with the stuff that actually happened because it was scarier. And that hit me a little differently because I think about, you know, I always go back to my grandparents' house. It's just what I'm going to do. And because that's my biggest personal experience. And I personally want to write a book about that house. And like, and I just think about if a movie was ever made, they might have to add stuff to it just to, for theatrical context, just to, you know, expand upon better. it a little bit. Yep. And it's like, yeah. And I know they they would do something like that. And it's like, but everything that happened in that house is going to be scarier than anything they put on the screen. It's just exactly. the way it is. Yeah, but to Hollywood, they're thinking about the money. They're thinking about the right. the jump factor and everything. To be fair, gonna, the, the 1979 gonna... movie was pretty close to the book. Was they they kept it pretty like compared to the other movies, which were just ridiculous. The 1979 movie was actually the closest one I thought out of the ones I, that I saw. I didn't see all 17 of them. Yeah, <laughs> and just so, I, before we get too far away from that point, what you just said is precisely uh, the reaction that the Perrin family had to the Conjuring movie was they hated the first Conjuring movie because, and which was obviously the only Conjuring movie that was about their house because it was so far away from what actually happened at that house. And they said the exact same thing, which was what actually happened at that house was so much scarier than what they put in that movie, which by the way, was a pretty scary movie. Um, But they were just, they were pissed off. They were like, like in the family universally hated the movie. Because it's just it's hard to translate it sometimes. It's just so hard to to and to keep it going. Like all the stories I have of that house, how do you translate that into an hour and a half movie? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the stuff that we experienced, it was scary as hell. How do you and you know give people that emotion that we felt the night that we were sitting in the living room and we heard somebody walking down the stairway to the to the other bedroom and then it was just done like that was the that was the night at that point nothing else happened that particular night but you got to keep going on it in a movie you got to go okay well that was the start now it's got to escalate a little bit more and you got to build it up for an audience so well for a hollywood movie footsteps being heard is like the beginning of the haunting for us that was kind of actually that that wasn't even the only thing that happened that night there was like no there was other smashed against walls and everything but there, there was a also a snowstorm going outside. So we had to figure out what was wind and what wasn't, but the footsteps was, was that I want to get to this question real quick. So Dana asked a question for you guys, even if it's been debunked, if given a chance, would you guys stay there to investigate for a few days? I would. Uh, In a heartbeat. Unfortunately, it's not an option with this house. The current owners want nothing to do with the story. The neighborhood of Amityville wants nothing to do with the haunting story. They're so sick of it. The people who own the house now, um, have completely remodeled the house. They got rid of those trademark windows on either side of the chimney, and they even changed the address from 112 to 108. Sorry for doxing them. They, <laughs> they but, uh, allow people in the house occasionally, but not for investigations. So uh, a woman I work with has been in the house. 
Oh, wow. Really? She's very well, into this stuff, and she was able to go and see the house, but they were not allowed to investigate, and it was a very short period of time. Yeah. I mean, if we're going with believing the Lutz's story, then the house isn't haunted anymore anyways, because whatever was haunting the house followed them away. Yeah, but do you think, like, so because we know that there, we don't know what the rules are. We don't make the rules or anything like that. So now that the Lutzes are dead, right, and it seemed like that demonic entity was following them, do you think that when they finally passed, does that revert back to the house, or does that, or do you think it just goes, or it stays where the Lutzes lived last until somebody else comes along? It's a good question. I mean, obviously, I don't think anyone knows knows but i mean i guess so if it attached itself to ronnie and ronnie killed his family and then ronnie went to prison but the entity didn't follow him to prison that you know that's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting but he went to prison and and um the but the time between ronnie going to prison and uh the lutz family moving in was less than a month so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is a possibility that there was an, an entity that lingered in the house long enough for when the Lutz family to move in to attach itself to George, who looked almost exactly like Ronnie. So that's another theory. Yeah, that's a, that's fair because yeah, he so. he looks so much like him that he would go to the bar and like they would ask if he was rel- a relative of his. Yeah, which is crazy. So I'm not going to try to pronounce this guy's name, but we'll just call him Ben. Uh, he's Brian Genduso. <clears throat> oh. Okay, anyways, he says the portal was moved. So that could be a thing. Yeah, there's lots and, of different um, theories with portals. And, um, you know, I, I don't even try and get into the understanding the the portals and the different dimensions and whatnot. There are paranormal experts who will probably sit down and talk for hours about stuff like that. But that's not that's not me. I can't I don't I can't grasp the theory like around portals and whatnot. Andrew says some drunk idiots probably trapped the entity inside of a box. <laughs> and now we have it. Yeah, we brought it home. <laughs> um, the other part I, I think we should talk talk about is um, Ed and Lorraine Warren. I know you've been waiting, so I'm not going to focus. Have has to, it's, what's a Dave episode without some sort of... Ed well, I mean, this Lorraine is actually Warren. one of their cases. It's okay to talk about Ed and Lorraine Warren on their actual cases. Yeah. So they investigated the property shortly after the Lutzes moved out. And they were, they didn't know, there was a theory that the Lutzes knew the Warrens beforehand. That is a pretty shaky theory and pretty much baseless. The Warrens were introduced to the family through Channel 5 News, who kind of uh, brokered the whole investigation after the fact. Uh, they had a couple of journalists there, uh, one of which was Marvin Scott. So you had Ed and Lorraine Warren, you had Mary Pascarella, which is their medium, the same medium from The Conjuring House, uh, who fucked that whole situation up. Uh, they had several parapsychologists and a couple of journalists. And um, you had... Ed and Lorraine, or Lorraine specifically, was experienced all sorts of stuff. Uh, Mary was uh, ended up getting nauseous and sick and had to pretty much bow out. And while all this was happening, Marvin Scott 
after the fact quote said, despite all the drama and all the hype, I experienced nothing unusual. And I believe throughout the years that the story was nothing more than a good ghost story that has become a cottage industry to believers of the occult. So he was basically saying that while everyone else was like all the mediums and parapsychologists were experiencing stuff, him and the other journalists were like, "Mm, I'm not really feeling anything here. Right. Um, But he did. He did after the fact say that the picture that they got of the demon child was unnerving because there was no child there and he couldn't explain that picture. So, right. I'm going to try to pull a picture up, but that was, uh, you briefly showed it towards um, the end. Towards the end. It was like at the, the kid sitting down the hall with these like glowing eyes. And that one's, they've tried to debunk it a couple of times. I'll pull it up before we do. But yeah, the, that, so the journalists that were there, they were even sitting in the, he said it on two of the seances that Lorraine Warren held. Uh, one of them was in the sewing room, and I think one of them was somewhere else. And the sewing room was supposed to be like the really evil room. And um, right. he's just sitting there, and she's like feeling all sorts of things. And he's just sitting there like, I got nothing. <laughs> so, I mean, people are going to be like that. You know, it's uh, you know, uh, people that are hardcore skeptics. I mean, maybe they aren't feeling anything. I I, I believe it. but Well, it, a clairvoyant is somebody who can feel things that other people can't. That's the point of you know, mediums and clairvoyance. So it's, you know, you bring these people in because they can, they have the extrasensory, you know, perception. And it's like to bring them in and be like, Oh yeah, they're feeling shit. And I'm not idiots. It's kind of just, well, why'd you bring them in? (laughs) I thought that was the point. So that just seems kind of weird to me, but the, uh, the Warrens to be fair, they, um, you know, they weren't, this wasn't one of the cases where you can really say they were exploitative, of the family because they were called in to it. They weren't really familiar with what was going on. They had been out of town. Weird fact. Um, the night Ronnie DeFeo killed his family at three fifteen AM, Ed yep. Warren's mother died of a heart attack or maybe not a heart attack. She died at three fifteen AM this the exact same night. Mm-hmm. Oh, so uh, that's why he was, this is, this is the picture here. So I couldn't get a uh, bigger version of it, but <clears throat> for people that are watching, you could see right here, there was no kid at the house at the time. Uh, this was during the investigation that they had. One, they had basically a photo. They, they had a camera set up with infrared down the hall that would just flash and take pictures uh, from time to time. And it, I don't know if it was motion censored or not, but it would always uh, it would take pictures throughout the night. And this is one of the pictures that it caught. And it's clearly a child. Uh, they tried to debunk it to say that this could have been one of the uh, paranormal investigators that were at the house at the time. But that was a grown man, and this is clearly not a grown man. This looks like a child. But they, the reason that they're trying to say that's him was that he was also wearing a plaid shirt, and you can kind of see a plaid shirt here. And the reason that his eyes are glowing in this picture was because of the infrared, infrared camera. But I don't think it checks out because I think this does not look like a grown man. This looks absolutely like a child. The other theory I saw was that that, that man's nephew was there as well. But mm-hmm. I think his nephew was older as well. I can't remember the exact age, but... Yeah, it kind of it doesn't feel like it checks out. I don't know, man. This I want I really wanted to go into this house like finally like trying to debunk it, but there's just things that I just I I just could that quote particularly I was like, okay, so he's letting you know that a lot of the stuff that you're seeing isn't real, but mm-hmm. you know, like we experienced a lot of shit here and I wish I could tell you guys everything. And I'm sure a lot of it's like we say, every time we go somewhere, we, we walk out of there, we're like, ah, oh, we didn't get a lot. And then we're like, Oh shit. 
like we did this, we did this, we got this, we got this. And you don't even remember everything that happened. And, mm-hmm. and so there's probably so much that they forgot happened in the beginning. Cause you know how you were saying like it, it ramped up on day 18, that day one to 17, there was probably stuff happening that they were just brushing off their shoulder. Like that's just the wind or it's this or it's that. And until things escalated to a whole nother level. The thing with the, um, the whole root of the hoax claims, like the whole base of it is financial. You know, they're, they're saying right. this family jumped, got in over their heads on a, on a property they couldn't af- uh, afford. And then one of the main theories is that somebody proposed or they proposed the idea of like, let's stage a haunting and sell books and it just makes no sense. Like right. they took a hundred thousand dollar loss when you factor in the uh, motorcycles and the speedboat and whatnot that they lost. You know, adjusted for inflation, that's 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 over six hundred thousand dollars today. That they would that's that's a ridiculous gamble to make on someone like Jay Anson, who before Amityville Horror, all he had done was short stories and documentaries. Like this guy, yeah. this isn't like, like if. This isn't yeah, a guy had like, a contract with Stephen King or something. You know? Yeah, yeah, like if yeah, exactly. If James Wan came up to me and was like, "Let's let's we're gonna sell a story," I'd be like, "All right, I'm in." <laughs> yeah, 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 100%, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if like just a, a dude, even though you made that piece of shit movie malignant, we'll still do this. <laughs> Teaser. No, I think guy. I think that's I think that's seriously the the strongest point is like they had. People were like, oh, yeah, they were broke. They couldn't make their next mortgage payment. Like, no, they were paid up for months ahead on their mortgage. Like, if they were planning on, okay, that'll be our last day. We're going to say that this was the most haunted night ever. We're just going to leave and leave all of our stuff behind. They probably would have done that on the last day of their their mortgage being paid up or their rent being paid up or whatever they were doing there. And it, it just makes no sense for them to jump the gun months early when they were already prepaid and everything. So I think that's that's one of the strongest... Um, points is like it it definitely throws the the financial debunking out the window for me yeah they could have burned the house down and got more money than they owed on it (laughs) right so that that doesn't check out for me i did hear that they i I read one book that said that they left the house never returned and sent a moving company to go pick up all their things Mm -mm. i don't believe that i multiple sources that i don't have in front of my face right now that i can't cite Mm-hmm. have said that they abandoned all that stuff and it was all auctioned off. Oh, really? Okay. I found it well, interesting that they decided to spend like an extra $400 to keep some of the family before them's uh, furniture. That's yeah, disgust- just, disgusting. <laughs> yeah, they put that as kids were shot in. No, I don't think it was any of it the... Was just oh, a, what, it was just the frames. It, it was never a mattress or anything. But it I think most of the beds got ones, tossed. But. Yeah, the ones that actually had the people were murdered and were tossed. It was only, it was only like two bedroom sets that weren't part of the crimes. How were but, the bedrooms? Everyone was shot in their bed. No, well, what they, they, what they did was, no, there was just like the, the, the bed frames. Uh, okay. kept, obviously anything, well, obviously they didn't keep the mattresses. Yeah. That'd be gross. <laughs> ah, just, <laughs> you see the, you see the crime scene photos. They're just, there's a bloodbath. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I uh, thought that I saw more sharing beds and there was a few empty beds is what I was saying. That's what I, yeah. Thought I had read. The place was basically a mansion too, so there could have been extra, right? Extra room, extra furniture sets, and everything too. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your debunking of the debunker. Oh, Stephen Kaplan. 
I dude, I was, I was telling you, like we 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 ran out. Of, your episode was so long that we legitimately you outlasted all of the music backings that I created, <laughs> which are all like thirteen minutes long. So congratulations, you you've uh, you outlasted. I, I have defeated the music. <laughs> you defeated the music, and uh, at that point, I I was texting him like, dude, we should just add the Curb Your Enthusiasm music behind the point where you're talking <laughs> about this, <laughs> this, this, <laughs> yeah, this, this wolf doctor guy or whatever his name is. And not even a real doctor or like a, allegedly not a real doctor. The he, fraud he doctor. got his, he got his PhD from the school where the guy from went a fraud for giving out fake yeah. PhD. So yeah. you can so, surmise <laughs> that was uh you absolutely, you put out a diss track on him. I see if he responds. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun. Time. It's fun because First there's off, not many. Books. <laughs> <laughs> and the hauntings you claim. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah, no, that I mean, good. it's fun because we're not going to be able to do this with a lot of cases just because of the notoriety of Amityville. Because guess what? It's one of supposedly the most haunted houses in America. Uh, I guess. Yes. Look at it's, that. Our, 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 the hometown ghost stories resident skeptic just debunked the debunker. Boom! Right. Yeah. <laughs> Did it? That. Uh, That's right. So that is anything else you guys wanted to hit on this? I don't think so. I mean, probably. I think that's pretty much it. I mean, we touched on a lot of it. That was a long one, but that is that. If there's anything else that we missed, you guys feel free to leave it in the comments on YouTube. And that is uh, that's Amityville episode number twenty-four. Dave, nice, nice job on that. uh, Very well done on that feature-length film. Yes, (laughs) that's definitely a good one. What do we got coming up next week, Rob? Uh, Well, first we got some more side con- side content that was almost a really bad word you gotta calm down <laughs> you gotta calm down we got some some side content coming uh this week where we're doing a uh, horror movie reviews again me and dave uh avid horror movie fans we review malignant and the terrifier if you are a patreon member it will be released to you on patreon tomorrow and everyone else will get it on friday and then next week, I am doing a requested location. So one of our longtime listeners, Liz, suggested that we do the Isle, the Isle of Shoals. The Isles of Shoals. Ooh, pirates. Which, which Sounds like a Sea of Thieves update. It involves some pirates. They are located on the New Hampshire main border in the ocean and uh some really fun stories i thought it would be nice to get back to some lesser known stuff as well Mm -hmm. we've been really hitting some of the heavy hitters so i think taking a step back and just no it's fine (laughs) i did annabelle like it's you know jesse did waverly like we did we've knocked out some really big stuff so i think getting back to some lesser known stuff for people that unless you're from the area don't know is going to be fun to do Mm-hmm. And then after that, I'm going to cover the four-part episode on the Titanic. That's right. <laughs> Great. Great. No, I'm kidding. I'm not. But no, after that, I have uh, – I can't remember what the um, – uh, it's, it's a really oh, creepy name. Like the name alone was – Sounds like, really oh, good. Was, sounds it like was the, awesome. uh, yeah, yeah, no. Okay. It's the uh, the Hex Hollow Witch, which is a uh, – That does sound pretty cool. An absolutely bonkers story with a lot of – insane people <laughs> it's it's i couldn't believe the story when i read it and i had to look into it and it is a legit story and it's a it's gonna be a fun one so i don't know if, i'll probably cover a few areas I, I haven't finalized everything but that's gonna be one of the stories in my episode and it's gonna be awesome so i'm excited about that anyways uh we need um we need more reviews on on itunes ladies and gentlemen so oh we have talking. one to read too so we should probably do that 
Yeah, so. you pull that up. But uh, yeah, the way you support this show, either number one is on Patreon. Number two is, uh, please, if you haven't already, drop us a review on iTunes. We have a lot of people listening, which is awesome. I want to thank everyone who tunes in, but we are easily averaging over 7,500 plays a week now, which is amazing. So I want to thank everyone that, that listens to the podcast, no matter what platform you listen on. But if you do have the time, swing on over to um, Apple Podcasts and leave us a, a review, leave a comment, and we'll read it on air. Rob, you got one of those uh, yeah. up there? I got the two from this past week. One's titled yeah. Favorite New Scary Podcast. Okay. It's from Nick. I love the story. I love the storytelling and the quality is great. I love the commentary after each episode. Two of my favorite things about Scary Story Podcast and one show. Keep it up, guys. And the other one just says, love the personal ghost experiences, which make these stories sound more credible. So, yeah, the ones that we've done personal stories on. Um, The only other thing to mention is we're not going to announce what it is yet, but we have something big coming up and we are we have booked it and we are doing it Sunday. And once it comes out, we will let you guys know what that is. But we're really excited about it for sure. I would like to tease. We got so for our patrons, our top tier patrons, we are going to be sending out custom coasters. Hello, oh, ghosters. Oh, I better drink ghosters. Um, uh, these are custom made by Kate Wilkins Fine Art, and I'm sending one. those out to our patrons. Rob, if you uh, subscribe on Patreon, I'll get one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this shit ain't free, Rob. No free rides. <laughs> Oh, anyway, sure. so thank you guys all for tuning in to uh, episode number 24 of Hometown Ghost Story. You know what I didn't do? I didn't even look to see if this was episode 24. I've just been riding with it, and I'm hoping that this is episode number 24. I feel like it is. So well, now I'm now stressed. Now it is. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm stressed. <laughs> Anyways, thanks again for tuning in, guys. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Appreciate Peace. it. Peace.